this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Hey, uh, we are excited to kick off this new series. It's going to be a four-week teaching series we're going to do through the month of February, the month with Valentine's Day, the month of love, in which we're going to talk about purity culture. And so we're going to hit some topics in this. We're going to talk about dating. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about our culture that we live in. And as we kind of go down this path, we want to really find out what God has to say about each of those topics. And, and to be clear, yeah, I recognize this series is going to take us into some deep water. And deep water is a scary place to be because in deep water is where people drown. And I don't want anyone to drown in this series. Um, if you're new to church, you might be a little surprised to hear a pastor, a man of God, on a Sunday, in a sanctuary, in a church, talking about sex and relationships, and, 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 and just talking openly about it. And, and I get that for some people, the word sex is almost like a dirty word. Um, if you're going to say it, you should probably whisper it or spell it, the old S-E-X, <laughs> or, or maybe don't even talk about it at all. Um, and some people think that, you know, avoiding this subject makes them somehow holy or that it's healthy. But I think just the opposite, to not talk about these things is not make us holy and it doesn't make us any more healthy. And I understand that families all have different opinions, even when it comes to like sharing with their children about this topic. When's the right time? How do you approach it? And some parents, they still give the talk. You guys remember the talk, the old birds and the bees? They still give the talk. Um, other families have moved to saying, no, we're going to have an ongoing conversation. It's not a one and done conversation. And other families say, we ain't talking about it. I'm going to let health class at school take care of answering all of those uncomfortable questions for me. And so no matter where you're at, I understand that all of us have a different comfort level when it comes to talking about this subject. And in addition, not only are we comfortable at different degrees, but we also have a different opinion. All of us kind of approach this subject of sexuality from a different vantage point. And the truth is, is that we're all kind of listening to different voices. And, and it's really profoundly important what voices we listen to in our culture today. Because there's some opinions in our world right now that are kind of forced upon us. There's some opinions that are offered for our, you know, consideration. But then we actually embrace certain opinions that kind of help us feel better about ourselves or better about our own sexual history and past. But... In this world of opinions, I want us to recognize that God has something to say about this. And although there may be a lot of opinions, the one opinion we should value more than any other is God's opinion of sexuality. And if we can begin to change how we think about things, not just thinking about it as you've maybe seen on Netflix, that's one way of thinking about sexuality. That's probably not the way we should go. Um, <laughs> There's Cinemax, sometimes known as Skinemax, not the way we should go. There's other ways to think about sexuality in our world today. And I think for too long, the church hasn't addressed this issue well. 
They've sometimes addressed it, but it's came with a lot of guilt and shame and you're bad. And you've got somebody pointing a finger at you and saying that you're naughty and that you're not a good person. And that's not the goal of this time. I'm not shaking a finger. I'm not trying to bring condemnation for anything that's been in your past. In fact, just the opposite. I want you to know that we serve a God who is a God who redeems things. And anything that you bring to God, he has the power to bring it back to life and to make it be what it ought to be. And so your sexuality can be redeemed no matter what your past has been, no matter what you've gone through. But we have to be willing to come and to say, God, what do you think about these things? And so while we are getting started with this, I know that this topic sometimes can cause discomfort. Um, it would be one thing to talk about it one-on-one -on -one in the privacy with someone, but now you're, you're saying, Pastor Alex, you're in this full room with people. Like, how can you just talk about this? Well, we're going to talk about it. And, and I understand that some of you might have like pushback. Some of you might like wrestle with me in your head and be like, I don't really know if I can go there. And is that really what God says? And I'm letting you know it's okay to push back. I'm not trying to get you just to embrace everything that I am going to say without thinking about it. In fact, more than anything, I want you to think and to process and to consider what we have to say. But, but before we get into all of these topics, the truth is, is that dating and marriage and sex and culture all matter to God because they impact you. They impact your life. And I want you to know this above everything else I'm going to say today, is that you matter to God. Like, like you matter to God. And, and I know some of you are like, well, of course, of course I matter to God. But no, no, no. Some of you don't know that because you think that you've done things in your past that are so wrong that God couldn't love you, that God couldn't really consider you, that, that maybe he loves you, but you always feel like there's like an asterisk by your name and that there's baggage and that you're, you're in, but there's these, these other things that come with it. No, no, no. God wants you to know he fully loves you and you matter to him. Each of you individual, you matter to God. What, what did they say in the movie, The Help? You is kind, you is special, you is important. Yeah, that is true. That is true of God. He thinks that you matter, that you are important. How many of you guys have someone in your life, probably an older relative, who enjoys sending you inspirational poems and quotes and stories via Instagram? Anybody? Am I the only person? You are the sender. I get those messages from you, Rebecca. Thank you. Don't want to point her out, but if you're friends with Rebecca, watch out. <laughs> So, so it's, a, it's a funny thing because like years ago, like before like all of our parents ended up on Facebook and like the next generation left Facebook because they were like, we're not going to be here anymore. Uh, we're going to TikTok. We're going to Instagram. Like our parents, they did. They took over Facebook and, and they love all those little cheesy quotes and stories and like they love forwarding them. And I'm kind of happy that they got on the social media and could take care of that because back in the day, we used to get these emails. I don't know if you remember, you would get forwarded this email and you would scroll 
for like an hour to get down to the story because it had been forwarded 6,000 times. And then you would read this cheesy story. And the whole time you're scrolling, you're like, am I getting a virus on my computer? Where did this come from? Who is this from? So I'm glad that we're done with like the email change and forwarding it that way. Now it's just on Facebook and you get a little notification. And so this week I got one of these inspirational stories from my mom. My mom's great. See, mom's polite. She sends it to me privately in Messenger. My dad, no. It's posted to your wall. So now I had to go change my privacy settings to where his stuff doesn't end up for the whole world to see. Now I can approve it and hide it and say, no, I don't want that to be identified with me. (laughs) These are just real things. Um, Some of you know what I'm talking about. So this week, my mom, she sent me a message, and I was like, oh boy, here we go. I'm already rolling my eyes before I start. And uh, I see that it's from a page called Cowboys for Christ. Mom, I don't know what you follow in. I don't know what you said to me. So I've already got my eyebrows raised. And so I, I'm going to share it with you because I'm going to be that guy today. So I'm turning into my mom. All right. So it, it had this kind of cheesy graphic at the top. It had like this tree and then it had like roots and it had fish. And it's like, I love this analogy. So here's what it said. It said, when God wanted to create fish, he spoke to the sea. When God wanted to create trees, he spoke to the earth. But when God wanted to create man, he turned to himself. Then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. If you take a fish out of water, it will die. And when you remove a tree from soil, it will also die. Likewise, when man is disconnected from God, he dies. God is our natural environment. We were created to live in his presence. We have to be connected to him because it is only in him that life exists. So let us stay connected to God. Now, I thought it was a cheesy graphic at the top, but by the time I got done with it, I said, you know what? There's some truth in there. There's some actually good things. And so I did not go and follow the Cowboys for Christ page, but I did take this and say, you know what? There is some truth in that. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that we are image bearers of God himself. God spoke a lot of things into existence. He created a lot of things. But when he came to creating us, he didn't just speak us into existence. He actually created us in his image. And we bear the image of God. And so there's a natural inherent value that we have just simply as image bearers. And so I would say this, that humanity as a whole was not designed to live disconnected from God. We go back to the Garden of Eden. We were designed to live in connection to God. We weren't designed to live disconnected from God and his way of living. That's important too. Not just disconnected from, but his way of living. Rather, you and I flourish and are at our best when we are connected to him and choose to live life as he intended. Live life as he intended. There was a way and a plan, and a purpose, and a way that he wanted us to function, but we have disconnected ourselves from that and said, I want to do my own thing. But if we're going to be at our best and flourish when we live as he intended, how do we do that? How do we live life as he intended? Well, it's going to involve learning on our part. If we're going to learn to do life as he intended, we're going to have to learn his ways. We're going to have to learn his thoughts. But the problem is, in Isaiah 55, it says, God actually says this. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, 
and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Well, if the only way I can live life as he intended is to learn his ways and thoughts, then how do I know this? I can't figure it out on my own. They're far above me. They're beyond anything I could have. Well, here's what I need. I need God to actually begin to share his thoughts with me. I need him to share his ways with me. I'm not going to figure it out on my own. I'm not going to come to it just naturally. I need him to say, hey, this is how I think about this subject. Hey, this is the way that we approach this. If you're going to do it the way I intended, let me share with you what that is. And here's the great news for us in 2023. God's revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ, and he's revealed himself to us through the Holy Scriptures, through the Scriptures that we have. So when it comes to what does God think about things and how does he approach them, we can look at the life of Jesus, and we can look at the Scriptures to know how to think and how to handle ourselves in the way that he intended. That's such good news for us. Such good news. So, so the way that God thinks and the way that he carries himself, he has a way for us to approach sexuality. He has thoughts about how we express ourselves sexually, and we need to learn what those ways are and the way that he thinks about it. Now, some people believe incorrectly that our spiritual being is completely separate from our physical being. If I were to put it on a diagram, it would look like this. They think that the physical is one thing and the spiritual is something completely different. Maybe you've heard this line before. Maybe, maybe you said it, maybe you heard it in a movie or a friend said it, but it's, it was just sex. It, it didn't mean anything. It was just physical. You ever heard that line sometime, like somebody says this? Typically, that line is said like in a movie or a time when someone's caught cheating on their spouse. And in that moment of confrontation, the defense for their promiscuity was like, hey, 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 it was just sex. It, it was just physical. It didn't mean anything. Like my whole being wasn't involved. No, it was just this physical act. And the assumption is, is that the body uh, is just flesh and blood, that this physical thing is somehow disconnected from their spiritual being. And it's not just in movies that this idea exists, but, but there's actually people in the church who embrace this dichotomy as well. See, often Christians think that all that God cares about is the spiritual. That's all that God really cares about. He doesn't care about the physical. He just cares about the spiritual. And so some Christians, they just only focus on the spiritual and they neglect taking care of their physical body. We could talk about exercise. We could talk about diet. We could talk about sexuality. All of that they see as separate from who God is, and they live with these two things completely separate. So the church people have it separate. Those who are embracing casual sex and just kind of a hookup culture and just seeing sex as this physical thing are embracing this. But here's the truth of how God sees it and what we read in the Bible is the Bible teaches that you are a spirit with a soul inside of a body. This is you. This is a very different picture than we just had. This has everything together integrated into one. There's not a separation from all of these different things. It's not the physical and the spirit separate. No, no, no. It's an integrated wholeness. You are much more complex than you realize. And see, this means that whatever you do with your body actually impacts your entire being. 
what you do with your body changes how you think about things. Your choice, your will, your emotions, your body impacts your soul and it ultimately influences your spirit. The body matters much more than we usually imagine it does. See, without a body, there'd be no way to locate you in time and space here on earth. If you're just a soul and a spirit, I can't see you. I don't know who you are, where you are, when you are. Your body actually locates us in time and space here on earth. Your body matters because guess what? We live in it and with it. And it changes over time, doesn't it? (laughs) I hate that. I hate that truth. Uh, our, our bodies matter because we actually, through our body, interact with the world around us. Our five senses are a part of our body, our sight, smell, all of those. Uh, it's through our body that we actually can communicate with the people that we live alongside of. And, and it's crazy to think that God is actually helping keep us physically alive, even though it's appointed once for a man to die, like while we're here, we're alive in this body. And, and I get that our bodies are fragile and I get that our bodies are finite and are doomed to die, but our bodies still matter. And so the scriptures show us how much the human body matters to God and why. See, God cares about our bodies, not just our spirit and soul. See, God made our bodies. Remember that verse in Psalm 139, 13, it says that he knit us together in our mother's wombs. See, he desired for us to be embodied. Yeah, the essential core of who you are is your soul and your spirit, but he designed for that to be embodied. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He he himself sent Jesus in a human body to come to earth. Jesus didn't just come float around. No, Jesus was embodied. We read in John that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then we later read that he rose from the dead with a body. He didn't just raise from the dead. No, he had a bodily resurrection. That's an important part of what we believe as Christians. And then he ascended into heaven in a body. He actually showed them his hands and his feet. He raised his hands before he ascended to heaven. And so the point that I want to make today is this. What we do with our physical bodies matters to God. It's not inconsequential. What we do with our physical bodies matters to God. And so as we read about like the earliest followers of Jesus, those who lived in like that first century, like Jesus was here, he lived, he died, he was resurrected. Then this group of people began to follow Jesus and they said, we want to do his ways and know how he thought. And, and so all of a sudden the disciples who spent three years with him began to share with other people how he thought, how he processed, how they were to live in such a way as to honor God. And one of the earliest ethics that we see was so different that this Christian group embraced. See, they lived in the Greco-Roman world in which sexuality was, was very perverted. It was very messed up. We actually see in some of the scriptures that there was incest that was taking place. Prostitution was a big issue. Uh, people, if you had money and you were a man, then you could kind of demand sex from who you wanted if they were in a lower class. Women were seen more as property. And when Jesus came on the scene and the Jesus followers, they said, no, all of that is not correct. That's not how God wants us to live. And they lived countercultural. They lived completely different than the people during their time. And so one of the earliest Christian ethics that, that was embraced was an ethic to honor God sexually with their bodies. 
And, and since the early church began, every branch of the Christian church, the Orthodox church, the Catholic church, the Protestant church, in every culture, in every century has taught this ethic. And it's the ethic of sexual abstinence outside of marriage. It's not a new concept. It's been the concept for 2,000 years. That as Christ followers, we will abstain from sex until we are in a covenant relationship of marriage. To say it in another way, that sex is to be saved for marriage. This is the Christian ethic of how to honor God sexually with your body. And this Christian ethic can be found in a lot of places in Scripture, but the one place I want to look at today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-8. through 8. And so I want us to take a look at this together. It starts off and it says that God's will is for you to be, everybody say it, holy. holy. What's his will? Holy. Is his will um, for you to be a virgin? That's not what it says. Is his will for you to... No, whatever you want to fill it in, here's what God's word says. God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. All right, so I want to be holy. In order to do that, I have to stay away from sexual sin, which means sexual sin is a thing. That there's a way that I can handle myself sexually that would not be honoring to God, that would cause me to be impure or to not be holy. All right, so God's will is for me to be holy, so stay away from that sexual sin. And if you do that, then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God in his ways. See, we're learning God in his way, so, so we're not going to act that way. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. In other words, God sees everything that's taking place. In verse 7, we're almost having this repeat, right? We started off in verse three, God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from sexual sins. Verse seven, we're repeating, God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. And verse eight starts with this word, and it's a word, if you're ever studying the Bible, it's a word I always circle, therefore. It means that something was said there for this reason. It's like a concluding, it's a connector. We're gonna connect everything that we said about God and his holiness, and we're gonna conclude it for you here. Therefore, Anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's break this down a little bit. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules, wait a second, Pastor Alex, I thought that following Jesus was about a relationship, not about rules. Well, you're correct. It is about relationship, but relationships do have rules. Like, I love my wife, but you know what? We have certain rules. She doesn't have guys come hang out at the house while I'm at work. Kind of a thing. <laughs> Vice versa. There's certain things that I don't do that I only do with her. There's some rules. Why? Because I value the relationship. And because the relationship is supreme, there's rules, of course, to that. When it comes to following Jesus, it is about relationship. It's not about rules, but there are rules involved. It's all about order and priority. 
And so here's what he says, anyone who refuses to live by these rules, in other words, people who want to continue to engage in sexual sin, who want to live impure lives, listen, they're not disobeying human teaching. Oh, this isn't just a man-made thing? Not just an agreed-upon rule that we came up with? No, this isn't human teaching. In fact, they're not even going to reject God's teaching. In fact, what are they going to reject? They're rejecting God himself. Whoa. Pastor Alex, I don't like this teaching. <laughs> well, I know because this is such a big deal. And, and it, would be, it would be wrong for us to not talk about this in church. This is too important. It's too important. Because if you don't live by these rules, according to the Bible, when you don't do these things, you're actually rejecting God in your life. And when you reject God, you're rejecting his blessings, you're rejecting his plan, you're rejecting his provision, you're rejecting what he has to offer, you're rejecting the savior of the world, you're rejecting eternal life, you're rejecting a lot of things because you refuse to be holy, which is what he's called you to be. Hmm. There's another verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. It says that the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. So obviously, there are sexual needs. In case you didn't know, we all have some sexual needs. And the Bible's prescription for fulfilling these sexual needs that we have is if, if you're a husband, then your responsibility is to fulfill your wife's sexual needs. Not anybody's sexual needs. Not women as a whole. No your wife's sexual needs. And, and the wife, her responsibility is to fulfill her husband's needs. But Pastor Alex, what if I don't have a husband? <laughs> what if I don't have a wife to fulfill my sexual needs? I mean, I have sexual needs, but I don't have a spouse. Well, God's will is for you to be holy, whether you're married or unmarried. So if you don't have a spouse, then you should practice sexual abstinence until you are married. In fact, one verse prior to this, it says this, that because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Now, does that verse mean that everyone should get married? Does that mean that everybody should be married? Not necessarily, because the guy who wrote this later says, in this same chapter, he says, so I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried, just as I am. Pastor Alex is getting confusing. <laughs> but, but, but look, he says this in verse 9, but if you can't control yourself, if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry, because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. Why? Because God wants you to be holy. God's thoughts aren't our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways, but you matter to God, and what we do with our physical bodies matters to God as well. Now, now the name of this series is Purity Culture, and this is kind of a, a term that's came about here in the last several years. Um, some of you may not know where that came from, and so we're calling this purity culture a biblical response, and I'm going to explain why. But first, got to kind of set the stage. Um, how many of you guys um, lived through the 1960s? Just can I see some of you guys? All right, so you guys, 1960s. How many of you guys have seen something on TV about the 1960s? Because, yeah, like, 
It was the hippie movement. It was free love. It was a sexual revolution. They had the summer of love. It was Woodstock. They had, you know, all of those things. Um, In the United States, this sexual revolution was taking place, and what they called it was the free love movement. And what was kind of happening was that young people were trying to throw out social norms. And so kind of the norm at that time was that you should save yourself for marriage. That was kind of a cultural thing, like, hey, you should probably not be doing that until you're married. Um, There was this idea in society that you should be monogamous, that you should be committed to just one person. And, and, And they were challenging all these things, saving yourself for marriage, monogamy. They were even challenging man woman relationships. All of this was coming about in the sexual revolution in which they were trying to give people to do whatever they wanted, wherever they wanted, with whoever they wanted. That was the sexual revolution in a sentence. Do what you want with whoever you want, whenever you want. Have at it. And with the introduction of the birth control pill in the 1960s, all of a sudden women felt like they could engage in sexual activity without the risk of pregnancy. And with the popularity of Playboy and other magazines and sexual erotic movies coming out, sexual freedom was praised in the 1960s. Now let's fast forward to the 1980s, 1990s. All of a sudden, in in the 1990s, AIDS had become the number one cause of death for men in the United States aged 25 to 44. Teen pregnancy rates had reached an all-time high. And the number of premarital sex partners also increased substantially from the 60s to the 90s. And in the 1970s, only 2% of American women had more than 10 sexual partners before marriage. But in 1990, that percentage had increased to 10%. And in case you wondered, in 2010, that number had climbed to 18%. Now, now here's the interesting thing. The children and teenagers of the 1960s, during the sexual revolution, do whatever you want, wherever you want, with whomever you want. They turned into parents. And uh, in the 1990s and the 80s, you know what they said to their kids? They didn't keep saying, do whatever you want, with whoever you want, whenever you want. They said, no, you're going to not be like me. You're going to do something completely different. No. And so they began to enforce new rules, rules that they didn't want, rules that their parents tried to put on them, rules that maybe the, the, the purity holiness movement of like the 1950s had tried to embark on them. All of a sudden they said, no, we've got to do something different for our kids. We want our kids to be better off than we were. So in the 1990s into the early 2000s, a Christian movement known as the purity movement or purity culture, kind of came to its climax. It was the height of it. It was was the the biggest part of this purity culture. And and those terms have been applied to that afterwards, but that's what we're talking about, is that purity culture in those 1990s and 2000s. I watched a comedian last night with my wife, and uh, he talked about how when he was, uh, he was the oldest of his family. And so his parents had become Christians right before he was born. And so he had like the most Christian version of his parents of any of his siblings because they were like super Christian. And, uh, and so he talked about being raised in the 80s and 90s. And if you were raised in the 80s and 90s in you know, Christian culture, man, it was like super Christianity, wasn't it? Like there were boycotts going on. There were certain things. I mean, it was clear. There's moral majorities. You knew how to vote. You knew what to do. You knew how to dress. It was a different time. So out of that world, 
this purity culture began to take place. And so Christians began to see what was happening in the world. They were seeing the negative side effects of sex outside of marriage. And they were desperate to stop teenage pregnancy, AIDS, STDs, abortion. They wanted to do something. And so this purity culture was kind of built on the established Christian ethic that's always been a part of the church, that sexual abstinence is what we're to do until marriage. And the very thing that that was taught in every branch of the Christian faith and every culture ever since Jesus' sexual abs until marriage. But what happened with the purity culture movement is that it took that as the goal and then it added to it. It made it extreme. And so it did, instead of saying, hey, you know, sex is for marriage, it started to do things like discouraging dating. You shouldn't date. If you don't date, you can't have sex. Don't date. Oh, you probably won't have sex if you don't kiss somebody. Kissing's off the table. Well, you probably won't kiss somebody if you don't hold hands with them. No holding hands. And, and so it just, it continued to go. And, and, and it kind of, without meaning to it, elevated virginity above all else. It was like, you got to save yourself from here. You got to be a virgin on your wedding night. And so all of a sudden, like young people are like smoking dope and doing all sorts of other things, but they're like, hey, at least I'm a virgin. And it's like, I don't think you understood. Like, God's will was for you to be holy, but you just thought I was supposed to be a virgin when I got married. And then it came with all these other thoughts. Like, well, if I am a virgin when I get married, then I'm going to have the best sex ever because I saved myself. And that's not true. They, they thought, oh, I'm going to have the best marriage ever. Divorce will never happen. I saved myself. I was a virgin. And that just wasn't true. The purity culture, it, it told people, here's the rule, but it never coached them on how to have proper relationships. It never coached them on how to handle themselves. And so all of a sudden, um, in this movement of the purity culture, and some of you guys might remember some of this, there was a big push for purity pledges. You would, you would get these cards, and you would write it down, and you'd be like, I'm going to be a virgin when I'm married. And you'd like put your thumbprint on it or put blood covenant. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. You're, I'm, a, I'm in. I'm pure. Um, other things, they had like purity rings. That was a big thing. Like that was marketable. Um, all of a sudden, man, all these people are wearing purity rings. It's a sign. I'm going to save myself for marriage. Um, they even had these, these formal dances that they would do called purity balls in which fathers and daughters would come together and it would be this promotion that you're going to be a virgin when you're married. So in 1993, the Southern Baptist denomination was so concerned about what was happening in the world that they adopted a program called True Love Waits. And the goal was to get 100,000 youth to sign these purity pledge cards. And in 1994, one year later, after this movement started, like True Love Waits held a rally in Washington, D.C., and they had 25,000 youth there with 210,000 commitment cards on the National Mall. It was like, yeah, we're making a difference. During that time, a book came out that was kind of the book of the era. It was Joshua Harris's I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I didn't have to go find this on eBay. It was in my office. <laughs> Got my name in the front of it. This book sold millions of copies, and in a lot of ways, it became kind of the curriculum for how to abstain from sex in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And it was through this book that like concepts like courting were promoted, that you should date in groups and that there should be this more courting concept. And so in the 2000s, some of you guys may know this, but there were some, some actors and, and pop stars who actually got into the, the 
purity culture, and, and they would wear purity rings. Um, they made this vow to wait until they had sex until marriage. Uh, some of the celebrities who wore these purity rings and would talk about how they were going to wait until they uh, were married to have sex included Miley Cyrus, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, Jessica Simpson, and the Jonas Brothers, just to name a few. Pure. I'm going to save myself for marriage. I don't know how well it worked out for them. I think they took their ring off. <laughs> so here was the problem. In this purity culture, it was rooted on a good sexual ethic, but it went above and beyond, and it began to actually bring in some negative things into it that were far beyond the sexual ethic. And it began to argue that it would be wrong if you dated or if you kissed someone and, and unless you thought you were really going to kiss them and so, or, or marry them. And so all of a sudden, sexual thoughts and physical contact and sex outside of marriage, they were almost elevated to unforgivable sins. And that if you had done those things, oh, you're, you're ruined. You're, you're done. And if anybody had already done those things before they heard this message, they felt like a less than Christian. They felt secondary. They felt as though they couldn't be as good as others. And while groups like this True Love Waits, they wanted to encourage people to, to sign these abstinence pledges, really what they were wanting to do was for people to see sex as something precious, not just something that was just physical. They wanted them to see that, no, this is kind of a big deal. It's important, and we want to honor God with our bodies. But the way that that message got picked up was that you're just it wasn't about purity. It was just about virginity. And, and all of a sudden, the debate among teenagers, as you can imagine, was, well, what does it even mean to be a virgin? The goal wasn't purity. The goal wasn't to be holy. The goal was to be a virgin. And so I can't tell you how many teenagers I've talked to over the years who were, were shocked when I said, you know, that oral sex is not, you know, really permitted as a Christ follower. What? Like, and some of you might laugh at that, but they really, like, wait a second, you tell me that that's wrong? You tell me that I thought that just sexual intercourse was off the table. I didn't know that that was wrong. And out of a genuine ignorance, they were participating in things that they did not know. That's not what God intended for you. That's not what he wanted. But I have, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a virgin. I know, but you're missing the point. And so this purity culture, all of a sudden, it kind of began to confuse some people. And, and, and and it talked about the right thing, but it just kind of promoted it in the wrong way. And we talked a little bit about that in our last series, the right thing, the wrong way. And so purity culture, it was promoting the right thing, the sexual ethic, but it just kind of was going about it the wrong way. And, and, and a lot of people today, you know, as they look back, they felt like what they were raised in in this purity movement was, was more hurtful than helpful. And they felt that it produced more fear and guilt and shame than anything else. Now, here's, here's the crazy part of the story. So, in 2019, Joshua Harris, who wrote this book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and ended up authoring several other books, Boy Meets Girl, of how he met his wife. He wrote some books called Not Even a Hint, that we shouldn't allow there to be any sexual immorality. He, he went on to become a, a megachurch pastor of covenant life. In 2019, just four years ago, he announced that him and his wife of 19 years were divorcing. People couldn't believe it. The guy, the example, the man that we were all supposed to be like, divorcing his wife? Then he went on to stop publication of this book and released a documentary in which he 
interviewed all these people that saw flaws in what he had written and the purity culture and how painful and hurtful it had been. And so he ended up issuing an apology for what he wrote in his books. And then actually later that year in 2019, he announced that he no longer considers himself a Christian. As Jessica Lee from churchleaders.com writes, critics of the book and purity movement said that it leaned toward a fear-based approach to sex and romance and promoted the idea that marriage is better than singleness. It also encouraged the belief that if people wait until marriage to have sex, then once they're married, they will have great sex and a wonderful marriage, which is a version of the prosperity gospel. So, so why talk about this now in 2023? Is it to hash up Bad memories if you grew up in the purity culture? Is it to shame parents who wanted their kids to make a purity pledge back in those days? No, that's, that's not what we're trying to do. My concern is that, the old saying, I think that the baby kind of got thrown out with the bathwater. That people rejected the book. They rejected that purity culture. They rejected all the teachings that came from that. And in the process, they threw out the sexual ethic that God wanted, which was for you to be holy. And in a response to what happened, in a response to the people, in a response to the pain, they just said, I'm done with God, I'm done with it all. And so the recoil from the purity culture, I think, has been so extreme that we've kind of discarded all standards of sexuality. And we have to not forget 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God's will for us is to be holy. Because that's the goal, stay away from sexual sins. God's called us to live a holy life, not impure lives. And if we refuse to live by these rules, we're not disobeying human teaching. We're actually rejecting God. And I think the worst thing that you could do is reject God. What we do with our physical bodies matters to God. You matter to God. He loves you. He cares about you. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. But his ways and his thoughts are better. Every person in this room has a sexual history. And none of us have done it 100% God's way. The goal in talking about these things is not to bring shame. It's not even to expose you. But rather... To let you know that God has a better way and that he can set you free from the things that maybe have been holding you down and you can begin to live the life that he intended for you to live. You matter to God. And I've only been the lead pastor for a couple months here. But I feel like God's changing my heart. Not only do you matter to God, you matter to me. Even if it's your first time here, God loves you. He wants better for your life. I heard an illustration recently of a, from a pastor. and For whatever reason, this resonated with me. He said, if you can imagine that you're blindfolded, 
and you're looking to have a good time. And so you're like in the middle of I-35 during rush hour playing Dodge Car. <laughs> and I happen to be driving by on an outside road, and I see you. And I'm, oh no, this isn't good. <laughs> so I pull my car over, and I yell to you, hey, hey, I think you should maybe get out of the road. Like, like, you're in danger to yourself, and you're in danger to others. This isn't, you need to reevaluate your life decisions. <laughs> and then you yell back, what are you doing judging me? I'm not judging you. I care about you. And I see that you are going to get hurt, that you're going to be damaged that life's not gonna turn out like you think. And because I love you, I'm not judging you, I'm judging your behavior. What you're doing is not good. You matter to God and you matter to me. And when you are careless with your sexuality, it's like you're in the middle of that highway with a blindfold on. I love you. I'm not trying to put you down. There's a better way. Would you embrace it? Start small. Start small. And it starts with you saying, you know what? I want to do it God's way. I want to do it God's way. I want to be holy. If that's you, I believe God's going to hear you. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk through the challenges that come with this. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about shame. I don't know what it is about sexual sin, but man, it's the most shameful thing. We all want to hide it. We don't want to talk about it. We want to keep it put away. But we're going to talk a little bit about that. Not to expose you, but so that you can be healed. So we can begin to move forward. We're going to talk a little bit about how do you even approach marriage in a way that would honor God. It's a little different than we see. I think that God's got a better way for us. Would you guys let me pray for you? God, thank you that you don't leave these sensitive subjects up to us to figure out on our own. God, you loved us enough to share with us your thoughts and your ways. And God, essentially, we believe that you're the creator of all things, which means you're the creator of sex, and that there's a way for that to be done that is holy, that is pure. There's a way for that to be encountered that brings the greatest pleasure that we've ever had. But Lord, we have to be willing to let go of the opinions that we've formed from our own experience. We have to be willing to let go of the opinions that we've picked up along the way from others, from our culture. And God, we have to begin to embrace and believe that your opinion is more important than any other. And God, I pray that you would help us to have the faith to believe you know better than we do. And God, I pray that as we continue through this journey over the next several weeks, God, that there would be freedom for people who have felt who felt ashamed, who felt beat down because of whatever's happened in their past. And God, I'm so thankful that you don't consult our past or write our future. God, you have a good future for us. And it's a plan that, that, God, we can't even dream of how good it is. So God, I just ask that you would be with us, help us. May we lean in. And God, may you lead us to a place that we never even thought was possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.